Father, we do thank you for, um, I just thank you for Ryan pointing us toward you tonight. And it is you that we want people to see. It is you that needs to be magnified and glorified in our lives. And it is you that so often gets pushed to the back burner, to the out, outer limits, to the fray of our lives, Lord, because we are so distracted and so busy. Forgive us, Father. Thank you for the reminder that while Martha wasn't necessarily doing anything wrong, Mary chose the better way. Father, help us to be more like Mary, that we would set time aside to come into your presence, and that's what we do now. Thank you for each heart that came tonight, Lord, their willingness to brave the weather and come out, Lord. Just what a blessing. Uh, As we study your word, we pray that you would speak to our heart. God, we we would see how great a king you are, how beautiful you are, God, how lovely you are, and just how much you care for each and every one of us, Lord. your grace and your mercy, we all so deeply need and is so ready and present at all times. Thank you for that. We praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, we studied the book of Daniel, and, and we saw the, the nation of Israel, the, the specifically Judah, to be taken captive to Babylon because they had not obeyed the law of God and giving the land rest. And so God said, I'll, I'll even take care of the land as I promised to. And he shipped them off to Babylon for a time of 490 years. And then we studied the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, Zechariah, Haggai, those are all occurring at roughly the same time. And it's covering the people coming back from Babylon some 490 years later to Jerusalem. But Esther, while it occurs at the same time, or roughly the same time, is an interesting look. It's a look not rather, rather not at the, the, what was happening in Jerusalem. It's a look at the Jewish people that decided to stay in Babylon. You'll recall as we went through the book of Ezra that the return was less than promising. I kept calling it the ragtag bunch. You know, it was of the roughly two million people that were in captivity in Babylon, somewhere around between 50 and 60,000 decided to return home. That's, uh, I don't, I can't figure out what the percentage is right off the top of my head, but it's a small number. 5%, somewhere around there, right? And so, um, Sad, sad that the people of God had grown accustomed to the ways of Babylon and made the decision, whether conscious or not, I'm not sure, but made the decision to just keep things going the way they were there in Babylon. We've got it pretty good. We've established businesses. We've, re- we've made relationships and we've grown families here. Why should we upend just to make a 900 mile journey back to a place that they had never been? And so... Kind of a sad commentary. So this book of Esther is, um, is a look at those Jews who stayed behind in Babylon. The events of Esther occur in between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. Okay, That's kind of where the, t- the, the book turned, if you'll recall, as we went through the book, where Ezra actually came on the scene there in, in chapter uh, seven, 6 and 7. And, and, and so we see um, in between those chapters... That's when these events occur. The events of Esther, the, the, the book itself, occurs over the course of about 12 years. So from Ezra chapter 1, when we see it's in the third year of the reign of the king Ahaz, I don't even know how to say his name. That's just, that was the, the boards expanding from the heat. That's what that noise was. So it get, it's kind of freaky when nobody's here, you know, because you're like, all right, who's here with me? But I saw everybody go, no, the roof is not caving in. So it's okay. So um, the events occur over the course of about 12 years, between chapter 1 and chapter 10, 12 years in, in time passes. And I think the overlying theme that I would like to look at as we go through the book of Ezra is the idea that God is in complete control. God is in complete control of all situations. He is 
sovereign. That's the word we would use. The theological word is that he is reigning and ruling over all things. He is sovereign. He is in complete control. Paul lent me this book by Eric Metaxas uh, called Miracles. Um, Kind of an interesting read if you're interested. Uh, He's the man that wrote uh, the biographies on uh, William Wilberforce and Dietrich Bonhoeffer as well. So this is his most recent book. And uh, Paul wanted to draw my attention to um, a couple chapters. And so uh, I was so, it geeked me out. What, what, what Eric has to say here, it got me excited. I know not everybody's on board with me uh, when it comes to creation and the way creation speaks to God, uh, speaks of God and, uh, and, and is impressed with the numbers and gets into the math and all that kind of stuff. But uh, on the cha- in the chapter, is life a miracle? Let me give you an example of how God is in complete control. And the question is, it, it, it must have been the hand of God that created us. It must have been a miracle that created a place, speaking of planet Earth, that we could actually exist on. The tolerances for humans to exist on planet Earth are so small that they are scientifically impossible. Yet, here we are. Yet, here we are. And so he was talking about what if certain things weren't the case when it comes to planet Earth? What if just, just minute things? What if we changed minute things about planet Earth? Would we still be able to be alive? So, as an example of God's complete sovereignty, I'll just read a little bit here. If Earth were slightly larger, he says, slightly larger, it would, of course, have sl- uh, slightly more gravity which has interesting implications. It's not just that a person who weighs 150 pounds would weigh more. It's that if Earth had just a little bit more gravity than it now has, methane and ammonia gases, which have molecular weights of 16 and 17 respectively, would remain close to our surface. Since we cannot breathe methane and ammonia, which are toxic, we would die. More to the point, we would have never come into existence in the first place. If you're thinking we might have evolved to where we could breathe those gases, that's more science fiction than reality. Simply put, life cannot coexist with large amounts of methane and ammonia. But if Earth were just a little bit larger, these deadly gases would not dissipate into the atmosphere but would stay right down here where we would have to inhale them. On the other hand, if Earth were a tiny bit smaller and had a bit less gravity, water vapor, which has a molecular weight of 18, remember methane and ammonia, 16 and 17, water vapor, a molecular weight of 18, would not stay down here close to planet's surface, but would instead dissipate into the atmosphere. Obviously, without water, we couldn't exist. As we've all heard, our bodies are 75% water. To think that the size of Earth must be almost exactly what it is, or we wouldn't exist, is sobering, and frankly, not easy to believe. But it is a fact that we need a planet small enough to allow poisonous gases of molecular weights 16 and 17 to evaporate, and large enough so that water vapor with its molecular weight of 18 will not evaporate. Before going further, we should say a word on the unique properties of water. As we all learned in grade school, a gas is less less dense than a liquid, which is less dense than a solid. As something moves from one state to the next, the molecules get closer together, and it gets denser, and of course, heavier. But if that's true... Why does ice float? Shouldn't it be denser than liquid? And shouldn't it sink? Water does indeed become more dense as it cools cools toward becoming solid ice until it hits 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit, at which point it begins becoming less dense. So by the time it's actually a solid, 
it is lighter than its liquid state, and it floats. If water did not have this genuinely bizarre quirk, lakes would freeze from the bottom up, killing fish and other freshwater life, which would have subsequent deadly effects on other life forms, including us. The reason water has this vital property is that each water molecule presses possesses two hydrogen atoms that are connected to ox the oxygen atom in a V-shape whose angle is about 104.5 degrees. Because of this obtuse angle, water solidifies in a hexagonal, hexagonal structure that takes up a lot, less, a lot of space and therefore lighter than liquid water. Marveling at this is not inappropriate. It goes on to talk about some of the other properties of water. And that's just some of the, 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 the fascinating things. It talked about how um, if our planet were to rotate faster or in slower, um, as, the suspect, uh, as we suspect, the reader knows our planet rotates once every 24 hours. We may all wish there were a few more hours in the day, but it seems if that were the case and Earth rotated ever so slightly slower, the temperature swings between night and day would be inescapably deadly. If Earth's nighttime side were dark a few hours longer, the nighttime cold would get dramatically colder, and the daytime heat would get dramatically hotter. As a result, life on this planet simply would not be possible. If our, our planet rotated a bit more quickly and therefore gave us shorter days, it would produce impossibly high winds. Just how high, we cannot say. Winds on Jupiter are roughly 1,000 miles an hour. So if Earth rotated slightly faster than it does now, we may conservatively imagine that it would produce winds sufficient to make it impossible, uh, or make an impossible stable environment conducive to life of any kind. So, to the minutest detail. Molecular weights, 16 and 17, because of the Earth's gravity, they dissipate in our atmosphere. Molecular weights of 18, just one, one iota smaller or heavier, stays here. God is in complete control. Of course, the scripture would say, his eye is on the sparrow. Not, a, a bird does not fall to the earth without, without him knowing. He is, he is in complete and utter control. And it's a good thing that he is. It's a good thing that God is in control because he is always caring for us. He is always providing for us. He's always working in our lives, setting up things that we need that we don't even know that we need yet. He's orchestrating the lives of 7 billion people on planet earth all at the same time. Imagine the logistics for that. Even when we want nothing to do with him. It isn't just you and I, the believer, those who are pursuing God, that God does that for. He does that for all of us. Whether we love him or not. He is, he is providing it. The, the word would say he, he holds us together. He literally science still can't understand, explain how atoms stay together. They call it the God glue. Even when we want nothing to do with him, God is in complete control. In the book of Esther, it's interesting. There is not one mention of God. There is no mention of worship. There is no mention of prayer. There is no mention of faith in the book of Esther. Yet, in our study of it, we will find the sovereign hand of God at work. Even when His people don't care for Him. He cares for the nation of Israel. Even those who would rather stay in Babylon. He's watching over them. He's providing for them. He's setting up situations and exacting things to meet their needs, to sustain them. So, we begin. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. You ready? 
Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. So you go, ah, oh, that Ahasuerus. Clear as mud. Got it now, right? I know exactly. No, I don't know who you're talking about. That doesn't clear anything up for me, right? Well, a little bit of study. Maybe for some of you it does, but let's paint a little bit of the picture. It's interesting. The scripture translates the name here, Ahasuerus, but history would know this person as another person or another by another name, let's say. Ahasuerus is King Xerxes. Ahasuerus is King Xerxes. At least that's what we can surmise, and most, most com- biblical commentators would uh, associate the same. Xerxes was the son of Darius, the grandson of Cyrus. He is the fourth to reign in the Persian Empire. He is the most powerful ruler to date, even more powerful than King Nebuchadnezzar was in Babylon. He has the greatest empire to date, reigning from, uh, from the, the farthest reaches of India to Ethiopia, to northern Africa. And he was even trying to go farther. He did not succeed in that, trying to reach into Greece and through Greece into Europe. Xerxes' father, Darius, he wanted to conquer Greece. That was his fame to, or claim to fame, and that's what he, he wanted to do. Um, but he suffered a defeat, a great defeat, in Marathon. And so as he retreats back from Marathon, he begins to lick his wounds and begins to recover, uh, recover his army, to grow his army again. But before he could fully recover to make another attempt in, in conquering Greece, he died. Darius died. So he passes the kingdom on to Xerxes. Xerxes then becomes the most powerful man to have ever lived. His kingdom expanding far beyond that of his forefathers and that beyond that of the Babylonians as well. He was a formidable man. He was um, a harsh man, a strong man. Uh, they say, and I don't know this to be a fact or, or not, but they say that he was head and shoulders above the rest, that he was a large guy, that he was uh, incredibly strong, that he had a, a temper like none other. Um, there's a story uh, that... Uh, of a family who um, decided to give Xerxes a, a large amount of money in order to, to fund his army. And he was so impressed by that, he, he, he put his blessing upon them and, and cared for this family. And the family had two sons, and as the, they went out to battle, one of the sons died in battle. And then they came back, and this, as the story goes, as, uh, as Xerxes was preparing to head out to battle again, this family who had great favor with, with the king initially said, hey, we lost our one son in battle. Would you please spare our other son so that he would not have to go out into battle, that our name could continue. We have given this gift to you and what have you. And, and Xerxes got so infuriated with that, he took the remaining son and split him in half from head to toe and took the two halves of this young man and laid him on one side of the road and on the other and forced his army to march through the, the, the remains of the young man, um, saying, no, nobody, nobody will question my authority. That's the Xerxes we're dealing with, okay? He had his heart set on revenge, uh, the revenge of his father's name. He wanted to take the Greeks. It's this Xerxes that uh, took the battle to Leonidas, and the Spartans in Thermopylae, the, the Battle of 300, the one that they made the movie out of, the book they made, um, and, and what have you, that's, that's this Xerxes, same guy. So, uh, they estimate uh, his army to be close to two million men strong. So that's the, Artaxerxes, or that's the Xerxes we're talking about. His son, Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, is the Artaxerxes in Nehemiah. That's, Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, it says in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. The, the king that Nehemiah was a cupbearer to is Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. So you with me? So that's the setting for chapter 1. And, and what's going on in chapter 1 is there, Xerxes is, is, or Ahasuerus is putting forth a, a, a grand feast. He's rallying support is what he's doing because he wants to go to battle again. 
And so he's rallying support. It says in verse 2, In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. That's the Shushan is, uh, we've, we've heard that name before. That's in, uh, mentioned in Daniel. Daniel served time uh, and, and served the king in Shushan. That would be the southern kingdom. Um, they didn't have air conditioning in those days, right? And so if you had a king, you could live, or if you were a king, you could live in different places. And so for the hot summer months, um, you would move north to where it was cooler and you would, you would you know, serve from the northern kingdom or the northern palace. And then in the, in the cold winter months, you would move south to Shushan and you would serve from there because it was much more nice. And so that's where he is at this time. Shushan, interesting enough, means Lily. And so we're going to start calling Lily Shushan around the house. Okay, So Shushan, which is better than Cinderella, right? So... Cinderella. Okay, so he's in Shushan, the southern palace, or the winter palace. It says in verse 3, that in the third year of his reign, and that's going to be 483 B.C. He, he, he took the reign in 486, so the third year, 483 B.C. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants. The powers of Persia and Media, or the nobles, and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. What? The dude's throwing a party for 180 days. That's legit. Right? That's, that's six months. A party, you know, I think we'll just keep it going. What are you doing tomorrow? Well, we're having a party. What are you doing tomorrow? Well, we're having a party for six months. For all of his rulers, right? All of his officials and servants and the powers of Persia, the nobles and the princes and the provinces being before him. He's, he's, he's displaying all of his splendor to all of these leaders that he is trying to get on board, rallying an army. Imagine the opulence. Imagine the, the food that would have come out of this. Imagine the, the feasting, the, the, just the, the splendor of it all. It's, it's going to describe it here. And, and some of the things that they describe are just absolutely beautiful. Beautiful. Imagine the cost involved in doing this for 180 days. This is a demonstration of power. That's what this is. This is Xerxes flexing his muscle, demonstrating the, the riches and the wealth and the power that he has. How, how, just to maybe... Maybe try to give us an idea of what this would have been like to throw a party this big and this grand. Uh, I don't know any specifics, but um, Cyrus, granddad here, Xerxes' granddad, Cyrus at his table provided for 15,000 of his nobles every day. Remember, Xerxes is more powerful than Cyrus. Cyrus provided for 15,000 of his nobles every day, to the tune of every day, every day, 400 sheep, 300 lambs, 100 oxen, 30 horses, 30 deer, 400 fatted geese, 100 young geese, those are the really good ones, 300 pigeons, 600 small fowls, 3,750 gallons of wine every day. Every day. 75 gallons of new milk and 75 gallons of sour milk. I don't know why, but okay. That's a serious grocery bill. And that's just what he provided daily. That wasn't anything special. And here, grandson 
is flexing his muscle. How much more? Wow. Now, it's possible, and some suggest, and I don't know how this all rolled out, it's possible that he did not have all of the nobles and all of the princes there for all of the 180 days. That he would bring a few in at a time, he would show him the riches of show them the riches of the kingdom, send them home, bring in other people. And and logistically it kind of makes sense that perhaps that's what he did. You couldn't have people from all 127 provinces at the the king, the capital for six months that would leave the kingdom uh, unprotected a little bit. So perhaps they rotated people in and out. I don't know. Either way, it's just a, a flat-out demonstration of, of his riches. It says in verse 5, 180 days weren't enough. It says in verse 5, and when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for not just the princes and nobles, for all the people who were present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, throwing a party for the entire city in the court of the garden of, of, the, of the king's palace, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Think about that for a minute. The entire city is now inside the king's palace. Tell you something about the palace? Tell you something about the gardens of the palace? It ain't, it ain't you know, your backyard garden. All were welcome. Had to be a pretty big garden. In fact, they were modeled after the hanging gardens of Babylon. They were so impressed with Nebuchadnezzar's gardens and and the way they did the hanging gardens of Babylon, they they did something similar. The Persians did something similar where they would have irrigation systems and they would have bring in, uh, you know, trees and fruit trees and bushes from all over the world. So the entire city now hanging out in the garden of the king's palace. Here's our description of the party. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. Pillars. They brought in pillars for the party. Marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster and turquoise and white and black marble. That style. HGTV, listen up. You want to throw down like a king, this is how you do it. White and blue linen curtains fashioned, fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver. You've got you to write this down. Ladies, you want your house to look very regal and, and royal. This is, right? Whatever. Gold and silver couches. Solid gold and solid silver couches. Hey, just put that over there. I've got 12 more in the back. Yeah. I mean, they had to put cushions on them because gold's not all that comfortable. So, think of the money. Think of the opulence involved for us. Yeah, we're going to make a dozen solid gold couches. That, whew. We've got a couple of those down in the basement or something. We, we had somewhere, you know. I, I can't even remember where we put them. Seven. <laughs> Listen to this. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. With royal wine, not just regular wine. This is no wine in a box. <laughs> royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. Every cup being different. No two cups alike. There's only two ways that happens. Either you're very, very rich, or you're very, very poor. (laughs) 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 Or you have four kids, and so then you, you know, no two cups alike because you buy a set of eight, but they don't stay a set of eight. (laughs) Right? It's rumored, and I don't know this to be true or not either, but as they drank at the party, as you finished a cup of wine, they would take your cup, melt it down, and refurbish new cups. So the the cup you drank out of it was never used again. (laughs) 
good wine. It's flowing freely according to the generosity of the king. He's, he's, he's lavishing everything he has. He's leveraging everything he has to demonstrate it's worth getting on my team. That's what he's trying to show. It says in verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure. So there was not only was it good wine, not only was it free flowing, there was no limit. There was no true drink minimum and there was no too, you know, there was, you couldn't have too much either. Drink as much as you want to or as little as you want to that each would do according to his own man's pleasure. They would have feasts in those days that it was you were compelled to drink as the king drank. And so if the king raised his glass, you drank with him. Every time the king raised, you raised. And what, what they're saying here is, no, that's not the case. It was just a party. Everybody do what they want. Now, verse 9. Queen Vashti, that's Xerxes' queen, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So that tells us a little bit about what's going on and maybe why things are happening the way things are happening. The women were separate from the men in this instance, but no, no dollar was spared. And, he, and, and the king gave permission or, or Queen Vashti took it, I'm not sure which, to have a feast for the women as well. Remember, the, 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 the thrust behind the feast was he was trying to, trying to gain military help. And so he made it all guys, just to say, all right, the, 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 we're going to talk about war. We're going to talk about the things of war. Uh, so the ladies can have a nice Tupperware thing over here, and we'll be watching football over here. Something like that. I don't, whatever. So, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you think? He commanded, imagine trying to say these names drunk. <laughs> Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. <laughs> he ain't got much hope, man. If, if your jersey says Carcass, <laughs> I'm sorry. They're just, He was already two sheets to the wind. <laughs> Three sheets. What is it? What's the saying? See, I, yeah, whatever. Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King of Ahasuerus. So he commanded these guys to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials. For she was beautiful to behold. Now remember the Holy Spirit prompted these words. So was Vashti beautiful to behold? Absolutely. It's, the Spirit does not lie. She was a very beautiful woman. So they were merry with wine. That equals drunk, just in case there's any question. Okay? And King Xerxes does something that he should not do. He acts in a way that he should not act. He desires of his wife something that should not have been desired because he was married with wine. Because he was drunk. Strong drink impedes judgment. And his bride becomes his trophy. Vashti, the name Vashti means beautiful. But as perhaps, as men can do at times, and the talk turned to that of woman, and they said, oh, you want to talk about beauty? You know, King Xerxes, Ahasuerus says, I, I, got, I got the best one of them all. You want to see? Hey, hey, eunuch guys, go get my wife. Tell her to put her crown on. Let's, let's display her in front of all these people. Let's show her off as a trophy, not as a wife. Verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was 
furious, you think? And his anger burned within him. You know what? Vashti is in the right here. Vashti made the right choice here. There's possible, a couple possible reasons why she said no, why she took her life in her own hands, because that's exactly what she was doing. To say no to the king was to ask to be executed. To say no to the king, even your husband, was a death sentence. But possibly two reasons. One, women in that, in that culture, in the Persian culture, were to be veiled. And, 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 and she, he was asking that she be shown off. The other possibility that I've heard is that she may have been at this point pregnant with Artaxerxes. And so perhaps that's why. By either way, whatever the reason was, we're not told what the reason is. She says no. She takes her life into her own hands. But oh, to be like her. That we, that you and I, would say no to sin. That we would be willing, no matter what it cost us, friendships or relationships or status or, or whatever, that we would just simply, when sin arises or the opportunity for sin arises, we, like Vashti, would say no. Yes, wives are to submit to their husbands. That's scriptural. But a wife's greater authority than her husband is God. If your husband is asking you to act in a way that would not honor God, it's not only okay, it is right to say no. Let me say that again. Ladies, hear this. If your husband is asking you to act in a way that would not honor God, it is not only okay, it is right to say no. And she does. She says, we're not going down that road. Now, consider the implications of that. Here's a man trying to demonstrate the power and the authority that he has. He's laying out all the opulence that he has. He's leveraging every dollar that he has to demonstrate to these 127 provinces that it's okay for you to get on board with me. And he makes a simple request, a wrong request, but a simple request for his wife, the one who should fall in line or should be, you know, there shouldn't be any question here, at least in his mind's eye, and she says, no. Think of, think of the implications to that. His power was being questioned now by his wife. This is, this is called, um, you know, things spinning out of control. This is uh, crisis central here all of a sudden. And he's furious. All that he had done was a demonstration of power. And now his power is being usurped. It makes sense that he would... Be furious. So verse 13, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew the law and justice, those closest to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. So these guys, these seven guys, are permitted into the king's presence at any time. A, a, a queen didn't even have this privilege leveraged to her. They, they were permitted in the presence of the king at all times. He says, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law? Because she did not obey the commands of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes. This is his answer. This is what we should do. Queen Vashti, he's not, she has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. 
For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. <laughs> Mimukin's like, this ain't good for nobody's house. <laughs> if it pleases the king, let's try to save this. Let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, which, so that it will not be altered. That was... The laws could not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small, including mine, Mamukin is thinking. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. So this is what happened. He sends it out. Verse 22, Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house, and speaking in the language of his own people. In other words, he should have control of his own house. It's funny, J. Vernon McGee, as he speaks of this, he says Mamukin was most likely a henpecked husband. <laughs> and he was just making sure that his wife understood we don't, you know, we don't go down this road. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it's fun to put that in there. So Queen Vashti is put out as a demonstration of Xerxes' power. We don't know what comes of her. We don't know what happens to her. We know that she is the mother of Artaxerxes, but how that happens or comes about if she's pregnant at this point, she hasn't had Artaxerxes yet, or if by some, something that happens later on that is not recorded, she is brought back into the presence of the king. We don't know. But it says the law cannot be altered, so I wouldn't think that to be the case. But the only thing that they can think to do in order to save face, in order to continue to demonstrate his authority and his power is, fine, we'll get rid of her. And we can look at this, just to close our thoughts for the day, we can look at this and compare. And that's what would be right for you and I to do. For this is a relationship of a king and his bride. Vashti and Xerxes. Or Xerxes and Vashti. Xerxes had to rule over people by keeping his subjects fearful. That's how he got people to bend to him, was by fear. But perfect love casts out fear. And the king of kings does not rule by fear, but by love. When Xerxes' authority was questioned by his bride saying no, he had her dismissed. God, our King, is long-suffering and kind. And in His grace, He does not dismiss His bride when we say no to Him. And we do that often, sadly. Consider all that Xerxes spent to display his power. Consider all that Xerxes spent to display his power. Consider all that God spent to show his love. He gave his own life. Consider the demonstration of opulence by a king with limited resources. As powerful as he was, his resources had limit. But consider the opulence that he had, the demonstration of, of the luxury that he had with limited resources. And then imagine the opulence of a king with unlimited resources, as is our God. It took Xerxes 180 days to display his kingdom. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That, hear this, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It took Xerxes 180 days to show the far reaches of his kingdom. It will take our king the ages to come. The ages to come to demonstrate his exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us. How great is his glorious grace. Amen? Amen. The king made a poor decision because strong drink impedes judgment. So maybe just a word about alcohol before we close. There are different camps and there are different thoughts in in the kingdom of God about the liberty that is given to us because of alcohol. And I'm not here to say on one side of the fence or another. That's not my decision for you. That's for you to wrestle with on your own. I do believe that we, by the Scriptures, have the liberty to partake. But I also see in the Scriptures a very strong caution to not overindulge. You shall not be drunk with wine. Some things to consider. If you woke up tomorrow and you heard on the news that one in eight people who eat hamburgers get cancer, what would happen to McDonald's? What would happen to the the beef industry? It'd be shut down. If we heard that one in eight people got cancer, one in eight people that eat hamburgers got cancer, there would be no more McDonald's. There would be no more fast food places. One in eight people who put their lips to a bottle become alcoholics. It costs America... Um, $255 billion in 2012 to treat um, alcohol-related diseases and alcohol addiction. Um, the, the numbers are, uh, of binge drinking and what have you are staggering. Um, something like 60% of all college students have... Um, practiced binge drinking. Um, Something like one in four between the ages of 12 and 18 have tried alcohol. Just a a word of caution and something to consider um, as, as you consider whether or not it's a liberty you choose to partake in. I'm not sure that I want to do anything that has the possibility of drawing me away from God. As you consider the um, leadership qualifications for the church given in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for deacons and for elders, both of them say um, that a man should not be addicted to wine. A man should not be addicted to strong drink. Um, but both of them also say that a man should be sober-minded. Um, and 
Alcohol impedes judgment. And just one verse, and, 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 and what I would encourage you to do as you consider these things, and I do ask you to at least consider them, even if you have position already. Do a, do a word search on wine in the Bible. Do a word search on strong drink. Just one verse I'll bring to your attention. And that's Proverbs 31, verse 4. It says, it is, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, which was Solomon. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink. And we, by His grace, are sons and daughters of the King. And so I just will close by asking the question, do we really need it? Do we really need it? We'll close on that. So let's stand, let's close in prayer. Lord, it is by Your grace and Your merciful hand that we have been saved through faith. It's not of our works, Lord. I thank You for that. I thank You that You're a good King. I thank You that You're a loving God. I thank You, Lord, that uh, and I consider all that You have spent to demonstrate Your love for us, O God. And I pray with our lives we would demonstrate our thanksgiving to You. Lord, I look forward to the day when You, for the ages to come, display Your majesty and display Your glory and display Your power and display Your honor, Lord. But may we be faithful subjects of the King even now. I thank You for Your sovereign hand over each and every one of us, even when we don't walk with You, even when we don't want You in our lives, Lord. You're forever caring for and protecting and providing and setting up for us, O oh God. Thank You, Lord, for the atmosphere that we live in, that ammonia and methane do dissipate, that, that the water vapor stays here on the earth, Lord. Thank You for Your divine orchestration of all things. Lord, create in us a, a loftier view of you, a higher view of your ways, O oh God. For you're worthy. You're worthy of all that we are. We love you, Lord. We want to live for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.